when was the last time that you used the wrong tool for a job? Um, or used a tool in a way that it wasn't intended. I see Joe smiling and we've all taken a pair of pliers and tried to turn a nut or a bolt with it or you know, used a knife for a screwdriver or something. And human creativity seems to know no bounds in, in solving problems with things uh, that weren't intended to be used that way. And, and it's not just tools either, it's, it's other rules and things. I think of the First Amendment, which was designed to prevent the government from interfering with religious rights, and yet it's been turned around the exact opposite way to allow the government to exclude religion in, in the public uh, places. And it's just, as people, we seem to have this amazing propensity to miss the point and to get things totally backwards from what they were intended. And we're going to see that in, in our walk through Luke today, just a series of examples of religious people just totally missing God's heart. We see how legalism and self-righteousness of the Pharisees is in contrast to God's desire for real relationship and real justice and loving kindness. Um, so to begin with, let's look at, at Luke 5.33, which is a, a direct continuation of the account that we studied last week about the Pharisees and the scribes grumbling about Jesus going to Matthew's house for a feast with tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus told them that he hangs out with sinners because they're the ones who need him. They're the, the ones who are sick and need a physician. We all need that, but the Pharisees didn't recognize themselves as sick. And, and so I, I think Today, as we pick up in, in Luke, it's really the religious leaders responding back to that, saying, oh yeah? You know, and just trying to put Jesus in his place. And, and so it says, and they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples, about the, uh, the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. It's kind of like, yeah, you think you're so smart. Well, look at, look at your disciples. They're, they're messing up. And, and look, everybody knows that really spiritual people don't feast with tax collectors. They fast and seek God. Um, and even your buddy John the Baptist agrees with us. And you and your disciples don't seem to fast very much, so, so what's the deal, Jesus? Why are you letting them get away with this? And the clear assumption is that Jesus isn't calling his disciples to a very high standard of religious zeal. They, they just aren't spiritual enough. Um, if they were really serious about their faith, they'd be fasting. They wouldn't be going to parties with tax collectors. And in, in our church and in, in most Protestant churches, we don't talk a lot about fasting anymore. We, we tend to think of that more as sort of Old Testament, uh, perhaps something we need to do to appease God or, or persuade him to listen to our prayers. Um, and, and actually, the law says very little about fasting. Um, when, when I looked back through the law, the only requirement for a fast was actually on the Day of Atonement. And even then, the rules about that day don't specifically say fast. It may be worse. The people were to afflict themselves. Um, you know, apparently, they were supposed to make themselves uncomfortable in their grieving over their sin. Um, but although fasting wasn't required, we certainly see lots of examples of people fasting, both individually or nationally. In his book about Christian um, fasting, Dr. Kent Burgess says, by its very nature, fasting seems to suggest that something is wrong. 
Eating is a normal part of human existence, so abstaining from eating implies a disruption in the very rhythm of life. But the Old Testament uses fasting and abstinence from food to point to something even more necessary for life, communion with and dependence on God. Fasting behaviors are sometimes commanded, sometimes voluntary, and sometimes even ritualized, but the Hebrew Bible rather consistently portrays fasting in conjunction with themes of disruption and restoration. In the midst of disruption, fasting comes to symbolize hope. Through repentance and prayer, fasting can signify the centering of the self in humility and the renewal of the relationship to God. In the book of Ezra, the Israelites were getting ready to leave their exile in Babylon and were preparing to return to the promised land. And as part of their preparation for that trip, Ezra says, then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek him, seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. So we fasted and implored our God for this and he listened to our entreaty. So they humbled themselves before the Lord. They were preparing their hearts to seek the Lord's blessing for their journey um, from a position of humility, from a position of brokenness. And they were also preparing themselves to return to the promised land with their hearts inclined towards the Lord. I mean, they've been sent into exile because of the hardness of their hearts. And, and Ezra wants to make sure that they have soft hearts towards the Lord. So they were fasting to help them seek the Lord. Joel presents a similar theme. He says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. So, so fasting, again, picking up on that theme of hope, it helps us return to the Lord, to be broken and humble before the Lord. It helps us focus our heart on him. And it's basically affirming to ourselves that the Lord is more important then the pleasures of this life, and even the essentials of this life, like, like food and water. I know when I'm fasting and my stomach grumbles, it reminds me of why I'm doing this, that I am choosing to obey God and honor Him more than my flesh. It reminds me of my complete dependence on Him. I, mean, I can't make food grow. I mean, yes, yes, we can farm and plant seeds in the ground, but it's God who brings the sunshine and the rain and causes it to grow. I can't produce water from nothing. God can. Really, uh, I'm pretty weak, and I desperately need God. And so fasting helps to prepare my heart to seek him, to draw close to him, um, to see his will done in my life. Isaiah 58 talks about what fasting and other spiritual observations should be and should not be. And it starts with a complaint of Israel against God. They were complaining to God and saying, why have we fasted and you not, you, you not see it or you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no notice of it? God, we're doing all these things and it doesn't seem like you're answering our prayers. It doesn't seem like you're paying attention. And God responds, Behold, the day of your fast, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast I choose? 
a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? God says, hey, you're going through the motions. You're, you're doing this spiritual tool. You're going without food. Um, you're putting dust on your head. You're putting on sackcloth. But your heart and your actions haven't changed. You know, you're, you're, still, you're just going through the motions. You're not really doing this. You continue to plan to do nasty things even while you're fasting. Um, so just those external actions don't particularly impress God. He says, you're not grieved for your sin in your hearts. You're not pursuing righteousness. God isn't impressed with our externals. He sees our heart. Earlier in Isaiah, God said, this people draws near me with their mouth and honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And they f- their fear for me is a commandment taught by men. God wants our hearts not just our actions. He wants us to reverence him and not just put on an act. Fasting and praying are tools to help us prepare our hearts to seek God, but they're not inherently valuable. There's nothing that God gets from us fasting and praying. If we fast, it should be for us to humble ourselves before him, to stand in awe of him, to to seek to know him, to know his heart, to know his will, to align our will with his God wants us to really know him and to fear him and to really reverence him and really love him and not just pretend that we do, not just act like we do. For the Pharisees and the religious leaders, fasting and prayer had become a thing they did to impress God and to impress others with their goodness and their merit. It was an act that gained them bragging rights over their peers. They thought it earned them some sort of spiritual merit badge or maybe a a sticker on the good boy chart. You remember the story of the the Pharisee and the tax collector who went into the temple to pray and the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. His prayer was, was bragging. It was self-justification. It was talking about all the good deeds. Pointing, He pointed to his fasting as if God should be proud of him for doing it. Jesus taught the opposite in Matthew 6. He says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will will reward you. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others but by your father who is in secret that your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Fasting and prayer don't earn us bragging rights. It's not about impressing other people. They're about us seeking God's face, seeking to know Him, humbling ourselves before Him, aligning our heart with His, not seeking man's praise. So when the, the Pharisees challenged Jesus about His disciples not fasting, Jesus responded to them with an allegory. Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? 
the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. So is Jesus saying that Christians should not fast? No, definitely not. He says in the future they will fast. In fact, there's numerous examples of the early church fasting, including in Acts 13, while they were worshiping God and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Paul and sorry, Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So fasting and praying were normal practice for the early church when they were seeking to discern God's heart. That being said, Jesus says to the Pharisees that for him and his disciples, it wasn't the right time to fast. And to explain why, Jesus pointed to a wedding. And you know, just, just imagine how silly it would be to go to a wedding planning to fast. I mean, that's just not what weddings are for. The, the focus of the wedding is on the bride and groom. It, it's not a time for us to be reflectively searching our heart before the Lord. Wedding is time for feasting. Start saving up, Joe. Um, not, not fasting. And, and the right thing to do at a wedding is to celebrate. That's good and pleasing to the Lord. He loves weddings. Weddings are for feasting, not for fasting. And it was equally silly to tell the disciples to fast in order to seek the Lord's face. Why, why would they fast when they can see his face? I mean, he's standing bodily in front of them. The, for the disciples, it wasn't hard to hear Jesus' voice or discern his will and his direction for their lives. He was physically leading them. He was audibly speaking to them, telling them what to do. For us, we do need fasting because we need to quiet our hearts and get rid of those distractions. But that wasn't an issue for the disciples. They were walking with Jesus in person. I mean, to put it in a, in a modern context, it's like planning a Zoom call to talk to somebody across the living room from you. And I, I know teenagers do that, but um, it, 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 you don't need to do that. It, it's great tool, wrong application, right? I mean, there's nothing wrong with Zoom, but you don't use it to communicate with each other around the table. Jesus then told a parable to emphasize this point. He, he told them the parable. He said, no one tears a piece from a new, new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he'll tear the new one, and the piece from the new one will not match the old one. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. He's saying, look, it's a good idea to patch clothes, especially in those days when clothes were so valuable. I mean, they were mostly handmade. People had one or two sets of clothes, you know, so if it got a tear in it, you had to patch it. But you don't take your brand new outfit and cut it up to patch the old one. I mean, that's just silly. He also presents the analogy of a wineskin, which we don't get as much. But basically what they did in those days, they didn't have bottles and casks like we have today. So they would take an animal skin and they would tie off all the openings and fill it with grape juice. And if it was a fresh wineskin, as the, as the wine fermented and produced gas, it would build up pressure, but the skin could stretch to accommodate that pressure. 
it was the right tool for the purpose. But if you put that fresh grape juice in the old wine skin that was already stretched out, it would burst because the skin had no give in it. The old wine skin was really valuable for storing old wine, but it was worthless as a tool for, for making new wine. The discussion about fasting appears to be a continuation of the religious leaders confronting Jesus about attending a party with tax collectors and sinners at Matthew's house. Jesus went to share the gospel with Matthew and his tax collector friends because he knew they weren't going to come to a prayer meeting. They weren't going to come and fast with him. It would be the wrong application of a good activity. It would be using the old wineskin for making new wine or tearing a new garment to patch an old one. Jesus did the appropriate thing in the circumstances. He went to their feast. That was the will of God. It, it reflected God's loving heart yearning to reach those lost sheep, even if it violated the rules of the Pharisees, even if it was kind of against the standard good religious practices of the day. And, and just to be clear, I'm not suggesting that we practice circumstantial morality, which says basically anything is fair game in the right circumstances. That, that there are real moral absolutes that God gives us, and there's wisdom in assessing whether even allowable activities are the right things to do at, at a particular time. But I'm saying that as human beings, we tend to make up rules that are out of line with God's heart. We tend to miss God's heart in what we do. Jesus concluded his analogy about the wineskins by saying, and no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says, the old is good. And, and I see this as a warning to the Pharisees that they were happy in their old spiritual practices. Their religion worked for them. It gave them honor with the people. They thought it got them brownie points with God. In their minds, the old ways were good, and they weren't really interested in this new stuff that Jesus was talking about. They didn't appreciate Jesus coming around with fresh reminders about God's heart because it rocked their boat. Their boat needed to be rocked, because they're oblivious to the fact that they were sailing straight to hell. But that's a warning to us as well. Our, our human heart is quick to make a list of do's and don'ts. And they're usually ones that we can do successfully, and that's why we like them, because they make us look good. They make us feel like we're deserving of God's favor. But, but we never earn God's favor. We, hopelessly, we are hopelessly sinful. Our, our best deeds stink. And we run the risk of going through life doing our religious deeds and blissfully missing God. So at this point in Luke, we have a chapter break. And the church fathers at some point thought it was a good place for a chapter break. But Luke originally was one long story. And it's pretty clear that th this theme of missing God's heart continues on into Luke 6. So we see at the start of Luke 6 on a Sabbath while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? So to be clear, Jesus and his disciples weren't stealing grain. Back in Leviticus, God had told farmers, you don't harvest all the way to the edge of your field. You leave some grain standing there so that the poor and wanderers through sojourners could, could get something to eat. 
Um, and so Jesus' disciples were living within the bounds of, of what was allowed of God's provision, honestly, for um, poor people and people passing through. The Pharisees' issue was that they were working on the Sabbath. And in the fourth command, the Lord said, Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath, which literally means a rest, to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. So the clear direction here is that the Sabbath day is to be a special day of rest from the work, from work celebrated to the Lord. The people of God were not to work on that day. It's one of the Ten Commandments. It's one of the you know the Big Ten, undisputed, right? And regarding the law, Jesus said in Matthew, "Do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the or the prophets. I have come have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them." So Jesus came to fulfill the law. He came to live perfectly by it not to miss the least minor point of it. In fact, it was his fulfillment of that, his keeping the law perfectly, that makes him righteous and able to pay as a, as a sacrifice for our sin. Um, you know, he is able to offer that sacrifice because he kept the law perfectly. But here the Pharisees seem to have caught him, right? I mean, he's out there doing something. His disciples are breaking the the. The Ten Commandments, it's not some minor obscure, obscure law, it's one of the big ten. And Jesus himself is defending what they're doing. So, so how do we interpret that? Well, it's another instance of, of people missing God's heart. The commandment was not to work on the Sabbath, but what's the definition of work? Over the years, various rabbis have interpreted that, tried to bring it up uh, to appropriate cultural context, and in the process, like all human ideas, it got crazier and crazier and crazier. And I've told you before the story about my Jewish roommate in college um, who would unscrew the light bulb in the refrigerator on Friday afternoon so that he could avoid breaking the Sabbath by opening the refrigerator door. And, and this all ties back to Leviticus 35, where God commanded the Israelites not to kindle a fire on the Sabbath. And the rabbi has concluded that one of the uses of fire is light, and so you can't turn on a light on the Sabbath. You, you, you could keep it going, you could keep it burning. So if you had it turned on the night before, that was okay. So he would tell us, you know, leave the light on in the bathroom so when I come home I can brush my teeth and whatever. We would invariably forget, and he'd be stumbling around in, in the darkness. But it, you know, my roommate was sincerely trying to live a devout life. So he would unscrew the lights and all the appliances he planned to use. But you know, was, was that God's heart? Here in, in Luke 6, we see the Pharisees rightly recognizing that harvesting is hard work. I mean, all the farmers amongst us, even with modern equipment, would tell you harvesting is hard work. Um, but then they went beyond that. And they said, well, you know, even just grabbing a little bit of grain in your hands and rubbing it together, well, that, that looks like harvesting, and therefore 
that's work. And the Jews aren't the only ones who have expanded on commands about the Sabbath um, to make what God intended to be a blessing really into a form of torture. Um, our kids like reading the, the Little House um, stories and there's, there's an account about the life on, on the prairie on, on the Sabbath. Um, part of a funny story about Grandpa and the pig, but I don't have time to tell that story. But anyway, the, the, she says, Sunday morning they ate a cold breakfast because nothing could be cooked on Sunday. Then they all dressed in their best clothes and walked to church. They walked because hitching up the horses was work and no work could be done on, the set on Sunday. They must walk slowly and solemnly, looking straight ahead. They must not joke or laugh or even smile. In church, Grandpa and his brothers must sit perfectly still for two long hours and listen to the sermon. I decided I needed to lengthen my sermons because of that. Um, they dare not fidget on the hard bench. They dare not swing their feet. They dare not turn their heads to look at the windows or the walls or the ceiling of the church. They must sit perfectly motionless and never for one instance take their eyes off the preacher. When the church was over, they walked slowly home. They, must, they might talk on the way, but they must not talk loudly, and they must never laugh or smile. At home, they ate a cold dinner, which had been cooked the day before. Then, all the long afternoon, they must sit in a row on a bench and study their catechism until at last the sun went down and Sunday was over. I don't know about you, but that would not make me look forward to Sunday. And, and it's kind of no wonder that people have this picture of God as this cosmic, killjoy. But in fact, the opposite is true. God intends our lives to be joyful. If you look at the holy days that, that God laid out in, in the law, there's only one of them that involves fasting and afflicting yourselves. We already mentioned the Day of Atonement. Every other one was supposed to be a feast. You brought your sacrifice to the temple and killed it, and then you sat around and ate it. You know, there's this abundance of food and fellowship and good times. Our God is a liberal God. He wants us to enjoy spending time with him. God intends the Sabbath to be the best day of the week. In Mark's account of this interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees over keeping the Sabbath, Jesus is recorded as saying, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was created as a tool to bless man. Man was not created to bless the Sabbath, to serve the Sabbath. God banned work on the Sabbath not to make our lives miserable, but so that everyone could enjoy it. It was to be a day when the drudgery of day-to-day -day work could be put aside to enjoy God, to enter into his presence in worship, to enjoy the creation he made, to celebrate his goodness, and in his goodness, God made provision for the legitimate needs of his people. Remember when the Israelites were wandering through the wilderness, God was feeding them with manna. And if they hoarded it to the next day, it, it turned stinky and full of worms, except on Friday. He gave them an extra measure. They could gather two days worth and it would stay over the Sabbath. So God made a way for them to be able to to take this time off from work and still have their needs met. And Jesus said, it's good for the disciples to pick some grain to meet their immediate needs on the Sabbath. God intends the Sabbath to be a day of joyful abundance with freedom from the daily grind so that people can worship and enjoy him. His purpose was not 
for people to sit on their hands and wait for Sunday to be over in a day of misery. That's not what God wants. It's a day to be spent in joy. There's two prongs to that. It's to be spent with Him, delighting in Him. In Isaiah, God calls His people to practice the Sabbath in the way He desires, and He highlights those two aspects, spending time with God, not pursuing self-focused pleasures, but truly finding delight in seeking God. He says, if you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own way and seeking your own pleasure and talking idly, then you will take delight in the Lord and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. God is saying, I I want you to delight in this day I'm giving you. I want it to be a good day. I want it to be the best day of the week, but I want you as part of that to spend the day with me because that's the best thing, uh, spending time with me, knowing me. But as sinful people, we have a tendency to twist God's good design and make them miserable. Again, Isaiah says, this is rest, to give rest to the weary. That's you know, Sabbath rest and give rest to other weary people. That's what I want. This is, this is repose. Yet they would not hear. The word of the Lord will be to them precept upon precept. And that means rules. Just rules upon rules. Line upon line. Line upon line. Here a little, there a little. That they may go and fall backwards and be broken and snared and taken. Look, God offers us, God offers his people real rest and real delight. But we make worshiping God about keeping a never-ending list of laws and rules become more and more oppressive. Just... Rule on rule, law on law, lines and lines of rules. Why? I'm not really sure. I think we think the more we suffer, the more we're worshiping God. And, and, and if we really suffer, then we can really brag about it. And we can really go to God and say, look, God, look at what I endured to worship you. You know, don't I, don't I deserve your favor? That's what other religions do, right? I mean, all these false religions, it's about sacrifices and flogging yourself and doing without, making pilgrimages, doing rituals. It's all striving to earn the favor of the false god. Or maybe us trying to earn the favor of our true god. We we boast about our spirituality, about the things we do for God. I've been to church every week this year, you know, And Jeremiah says, But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Our boast isn't to be about what we sacrificed or endured for the Lord. It's that we know him. Loving God isn't about doing this long list of spiritual things. It's about knowing Him. It's about what He, that, that's what He desires, that we know Him. And when we know Him and when we walk with Him, our lives will be marked by steadfast love and justice and righteousness because His love is steadfast, because He is just and righteous. 
So it ties very much into the book we're, we're studying as well. Um, Jesus responds to the Pharisees with their comments about the Sabbath. And he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So Jesus recounts this story of David when he was running away from Saul. Saul was after him to kill him. And, and David went to Ahimelech, the priest, and asked, Have you got any food or, or a sword? He, he had fled with nothing. And the priest gave him the bread of the presence. This is 12 loaves of bread that they were to make and set in the, in the temple, right in front of the Holy of Holies, um, that were kept there all week and then removed um, and when they, when they were removed from the tabernacle, they were food for the priests. But he gave those to David, for David and for his men at this time of need. And, and God didn't condemn David for that. God didn't strike him dead. There's, there's no account of, of God judging David for that. It was God's loving provision for him, even though it was technically against the rules. Jesus said, He's the Lord of the Sabbath, which I think actually has two meanings. So on the one hand, he is God of the Sabbath. He created it. It serves him. He's not a slave to it. He's Lord of the Sabbath. But the other meaning, I think, is in the literal translation. Lord of the Sabbath would literally mean Lord of rest. Our, our God is a God of rest. And that doesn't mean that he's inactive, but he wants us to rest in him. He wants to provide us with rest. His idea of the Sabbath is not a bunch of people uptight for fear that they're going to violate some rule and mess it up. It's about people resting and relaxing and enjoying him. Luke concludes this with an account, another account, where the masks really come down and we see pretty clearly the contrast between God's heart and man's heart. It says, on another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him, watched Jesus, to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so they might find a reason to accuse him. So on one side, we have Jesus, you know, fully God in human form. And on the other side, we have the best religious leaders of the day. And it turns out that both sides happen to be in the same synagogue, the same house of worship, the same church, if you will, on the same day, on the Sabbath. And both sides see this poor man with a dysfunctional right hand. I mean, Luke says it was his right hand. I assume that's because this guy was actually right-handed, which wouldn't be all that surprising. And so it was a significant crippling disability for this guy. You know, he would have been unable to work well, to work to his full capacity. He was probably struggling to survive. And then undoubtedly sort of a social outcast because of his deformity. And in this poor man, Jesus sees an opportunity to celebrate the Sabbath, to celebrate the real meaning of the Sabbath, to offer life and rest to this poor suffering soul, an opportunity to celebrate God's goodness and his love for the man and his power to heal all that's broken. It was an opportunity to extend mercy and grace, to practice God's heart of steadfast love, of justice and righteousness. 
On the other hand, the religious leaders see the same crippled man, same guy, but to them he's an opportunity to showcase their own righteousness, to prove themselves superior to Jesus. They don't see the man with compassion. He's just a pawn that they're going to use for their glory. And Luke says, but he, but Jesus knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said, he said to him, to the man, stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. So here's the contrast laid out for everybody to see. Jesus' heart is to do good on the Sabbath. In this case, it's to set a man free from the bondage of his broken body. The religious leaders have no concern for the man except for how they can use him to bring glory to themselves and harm to Jesus. Jesus wants to celebrate God's steadfast love, his justice, his righteousness. The religious leaders want to celebrate their own legalistic righteousness, even if it means trampling on love and justice. Jesus wants to celebrate the Sabbath by restoring fullness of life to this man, and the religious leaders want to celebrate the Sabbath by finding a way to destroy Jesus. The crazy thing in all this is that the Pharisees thought they were serving God. They were convinced that they were God's good boys and that they were keeping the Sabbath and that Jesus was the bad boy. After Jesus exposed the contrast, he went ahead and healed the man. And the religious leaders were furious. They weren't just a little annoyed. They were mad enough to think about killing Jesus. I suspect they told themselves that it was righteous anger that Jesus had violated the Sabbath. But the real reason is that Jesus had exposed their sin. He pulled down their religious masks and exposed their brokenness. So what does this have to do with us? Um, I don't think we're generally marked by extreme legalism like the Pharisees. There's probably a few places where we can be Pharisaical and miss God's heart, but that's not typically what characterizes us. I think the bigger risk for us is of mindlessly doing religious activities, thinking that they're going to earn us favor with God, but not really knowing him, not really knowing his heart. We're the church. We're the body of Christ. We're his ambassadors to the world around us. We don't want to be acting mindlessly because our natural response, our mindless response, is never in line with God's heart. Um, you know, we, we're sinful to the core. We always get it wrong. I think pride is maybe a, a really good warning signal that we're getting off track, that we're missing, missing the mark. If there's something we point to and say, boy, God must be pleased with me because I did, I did X. Or if we think we're better than our neighbor because we did, why? I think it should cause us to look, at, look hard at our hearts. Are we counting on impressing God with our deeds? 
for our salvation, or are we broken before him? Are we sinners saved by nothing but his amazing grace? Are we striving to put on a religious show, or are we striving to know him better? Are we seeking to impress others, or are we seeking to be led by the Holy Spirit into greater love and justice and righteousness? We were talking some in Sunday school about you know, at the end of, well, what, what does it mean to love? Does, does love mean, well, we just say, oh, everybody's good, everybody's fine. I think we need to wrestle with what, what does God's love look like? And, and part of that looks like loving somebody enough to confront and to challenge and, and to push back on some of the hard things in the world around us. I think we need to really strive to know God's heart. Just going back to that passage in Jeremiah but let him who boasts boasts in this, that he understands and knows me. That we understand and know God. That we're in touch with his heart. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For these things, it, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. We want to delight the Lord. We want to know his heart. We want to live out his steadfast love, his justice and righteousness. Let's pray. God, we're sinful, and we are so quick to mess up the good gifts that you've given us and try to twist them in ways that serve us more than serve you, um, Lord, that make us feel good rather than really helping us to know you and love you and, and live out your, your life in the world around us. Lord, help us not to go through the motions, but to really know you, to really seek your heart, um, and Lord, to represent you well in the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen.